It all started in 1878 over disputed ownership of a pig, the feud between the Hatfield and McCoy families, and it didn't finish for nearly 30 years. It's a true story. It's been turned into a movie as well as a three-part TV miniseries. The Hatfield-McCoy feud has entered American folklore as a byword for bitter, long-running feuds. The Tug Fork River marks the border of Kentucky and West Virginia. The Hatfields lived on one side, the McCoys lived on the other. The Hatfields had money from timber, were well connected politically. The McCoys were lower middle class. Both families were involved in the manufacture and sale of illegal moonshine, of course. Tensions had simmered between the two families since an alleged war crime during the Civil War 14 years earlier. But it really got started when Randolph McCoy claimed that Floyd Hatfield had one of his hogs. Local Justice of the Peace, Anderson Hatfield, ruled in favour of the Hatfields on the testimony of Bill Staten, a relative of both families. That was enough for Staten to be killed by two McCoy brothers in 1880 although they were later acquitted on grounds of self-defence. Things got personal when Rosanna McCoy began a relationship with Johnson Hatfield and moved in with the Hatfields in West Virginia. So the McCoys had Johnson arrested on Kentucky bootlegging warrants. Rosanna made a desperate midnight ride to alert the patriarch William Devil Ants Hatfield He organised a posse who rescued Johnson from the McCoy uh, custody. Well, the feud intensified in 1882, a couple of years later, when Ellison Hatfield was killed by three of Rosanna McCoy's brothers. He was stabbed 26 times and then finished off with a gunshot for good measure. They were arrested and then captured by a vigilante group of Hatfields and then they were killed by more than 50 shots fired at them while they were tied to some bushes. The feud reached its peak, however, with the 1888 New York uh, New Year's Massacre. The Hatfield clan surrounded the McCoy cabin in Kentucky and opened fire. They set the cabin on fire in an attempt to drive out Randolph McCoy. He escaped, two children were shot, his wife was beaten. A few days later, a posse of deputies led by the McCoys crossed the border back into West Virginia and caught the Hatfield attackers. There was a battle, a number from both sides were killed before the Hatfields were arrested. They were eventually convicted in Kentucky and sentenced to jail or death by hanging. Tensions eased after that, but trials continued until 1901 with the trial of Johnson Hatfield. Now, That might seem like a long, complicated story of a family feud, but can I say that's nothing compared to the family feud that's in the background here in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is a Jewish prophet with a warning for the neighbouring nation of Edom. The Jews are descended from Jacob. Edom is descended from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. It's a feud that began in their mother's womb. Apparently they were fighting even then. Genesis chapter 25 verse 21 says, Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. 
and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Esau was older but when they grew up that didn't stop Jacob the younger cheating his brother out of his birthright and then tricking his father Isaac into giving him the firstborn's blessing. And that was the start of a feud that lasted centuries. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, the pursuing Egyptian army were drowned and Moses sang a song in Exodus 15 about God's majestic power and how the nations would tremble and how the chiefs of Edom would be terrified. That may explain why not too many weeks later as the Israelites got to the border of Edom and asked to pass through uh, their country on the way to the Promised Land, Edom said no. And they even called out their army to make sure Israel didn't enter. And so Israel had to go the long way round. Despite that, Deuteronomy 23.7 says that God commands Israel not to hate an Edomite because he is their brother. Jump forward a few hundred years, by the time of King David, it seems like the two nations are effectively at war. David and his armies, led by their commander-in-chief Joab, killed 12,000 Edomites. Uh, The preface to Psalm 60 tells us about that event. To cut a long story short, it seems like these tensions simmered for the next few hundred years. Uh, By the time of Amos, around 500 600 BC, Amos pronounces God's judgement on Edom and sums up the attitude between the two brother nations. Amos chapter 1 verse 11 says, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. So there we go, that's the background. That brings us to the prophecy of Obadiah. Obadiah uh, prophesied sometime shortly after Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, around 587 BC. The Jews were sent into exile. And once again God brings a message to Edom uh, and it's a message about pride and prejudice. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? So the land of Edom, it was high up in the mountains to the, to the southeast of Israel. Uh, it was difficult to get to. It was almost impossible to conquer. And so Edom thought that made them safe. And they looked down on the difficulties, down on the plain that Jerusalem was having with Babylon. And they felt proud and complacent and comfortable. But God's warning was that he was going to make them small, not big. Rather than safe, they'd be despised. Rather than being up, they'd come down. So verse 4 he says, Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I'll bring you down. We're told that the pride of their heart deceived them. Pride is deceptive. Pride's deceptive because it thinks 
that you're autonomous and independent when you're not. Pride is deceptive because it thinks you control your own destiny when you don't. Pride is deceptive because it thinks you're not accountable to anyone when you are accountable. Do you remember the rich fool we saw a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 12? He built big barns to store all his grain but he hadn't planned on meeting God. He was a fool. It's that same attitude of pride we see in so many Australians today, isn't it? Comfortable, complacent, content. Work, family, nice home, healthy, active, disposable income for entertainment and coffees, hobbies, travel. They've got no place for God because they've got no need for God. Life's good. Whatever they need, whatever they want, they've got the resources to achieve it. They've got plenty of credit, plenty of savings, plenty of health insurance, plenty of super, plenty of connections, plenty of influence. If you've got non-Christians that you're praying for, one of the first things you need to be praying for is that God would break their pride. They may not call it pride, But that attitude of independence and autonomy is going to lead to God's judgement. Whether it's Eden in the 6th century BC or whether it's Sydney, Australia in the 21st century. Different time, different location, but it's the same sin. The pride of the human heart has a lot to answer for. Pride is the root of so much else that's wrong in our lives. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says the centre of Christian morality, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison, says C.S. Lewis. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind, says Lewis. You see, every time we say to ourselves, I want to do what I want to do, that's pride. That's what sin basically is. Pride is a declaration of independence from God. You might think just because you're a Christian that you're immune from pride. But we're not, are we? We're proud of so many things. Every time we look at someone, we're constantly comparing ourselves, whether we're male or female. If it's men, it's, you know, how much we can bench press or how much we weigh. If it's women, it's what clothes we wear, what our hair looks like compared to someone else. That's pride. We compare incomes, we compare education, we compare how well behaved our children are. It's all pride. But what God wants instead is a recognition that he's God, that we're not, that he's wise and we're not, that he knows best and we don't. He wants humility. In fact, humility is the way into the kingdom of God. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They will inherit the earth. 
Humility is not only the way into the kingdom, it's the attitude of the kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. See, humility is always in respect to somebody else, isn't it? It shows itself in how you put yourself compared to someone else, whether it's to God or to somebody else. Peter continues, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due course. Why is humility the way of the kingdom? Because it's the way of the king. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not not, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness and being found, uh, being made in a human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. That's Jesus. That's to be us. But it certainly wasn't Eden. So what were the specifics of Edom's sin, of their pride? Well, the attitude of pride would have been enough for God's judgement, but the attitude was just the beginning. Have a look down to verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So from the safety of their mountainous uh, hideout, uh, they saw Babylon marching against Jerusalem or heard about it, but rather than come to the aid of their brothers, rather than defend them, they just stood back and watched. But not only watched, rejoiced at their downfall and boasted about how much better and safer they were. Verse 12, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Israel in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. But even that's not the worst of it. Inactivity and attitude become active hostility. Verse 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Once the walls had been broken down and the the, the Jews had been marched off, it seems like the Edomites had come in and looted the city. Making the most of another's downfall is pretty low. But even worse, they joined in with the Babylonians. They'd they'd actually captured fleeing Jews and handed them over to their conquerors. And behind it all was pride. 
presuming that they were safe, thinking that they could act any way they want and that there'd be no consequences. So verse 10 says they stood aloof. Verse 12, they looked down on their brother and boasted. They thought they were in charge. But the reality is it was God in charge all along. And just as it was God who was punishing Judah for her sin, so he would punish Eden for hers. Yours will come, says Obadiah. Yours will come. Verse 6, they'll be ransacked and pillaged. Verse 7, deceived by allies. Verse 8, their wise men will be destroyed. Verse 9, their warriors cut down. Yours will come. And so we come to the last section of the prophecy. From verse 15 to the end. And it's at this point it's important, I think, to remember that this was a prophecy that's directed at Eden but it's actually spoken in the hearing of God's people. It's for Judah's benefit. Judah is listening in as God delivers his judgement verdict against Edom. They're listening in as they're led off into captivity. They're listening in as God's just verdict is delivered against Edom even while God's just verdict is being delivered against them. And the message that's comforting to them in the midst of all of that is that God's justice will eventually come to everybody. No one's going to get away with it forever. Look how in verse 15 the the, the judgement picture enlarges from, from just Edom outwards. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. Drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. Seems like Edom drank in celebration within the walls of Jerusalem, but God was promising that he would make all the wicked nations drink as well. Drink the cup of his wrath. All those kingdoms that look so proud and so strong they'll be wiped out. In verse 17, only one kingdom will remain. Look at the contrast there in 17. God's people look like they're down and out at the moment, but God has plans for his people. You see, God's made promises to his people and he will restore them. He will keep his promises because they're his people. Verse 17, all the nations will be as if they've never been, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It'll be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau will be stubble. The house of Jacob will be the fist, the house of Edom will be the, 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 the chin. There'll be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. In other words, it may not look like it at the moment, but God's people will rise and Edom will fall. And if you look through the pages of history, that's just the way it turned out. Edom, who thought they were safe, up in the strongholds of the mountains, well, they've disappeared off the map. Nicky asked if anyone had ever heard of Edom. I don't think anyone had. 
because they're gone. I mean, where's Edom today? It's been overtaken and overrun so many times there's not a trace of it anymore. I mean, who decides they're going to go on holidays to Edom? But there is another kingdom that has grown and flourished that now reaches all over the world. Obadiah says in verse 21, the kingdom will be the Lord's, the kingdom of God. You know, people have been writing off Christians ever since the time of Jesus. They've been writing off the Old Testament people of God for centuries before that. Today, they mock that we belong in the past. Churches are closing, the percentages of Christians are declining, that we're out of date and irrelevant, that we're weak and defeated. Public public opinion and the media say we're a spent force, that our opinions don't deserve to be listened to because now we live in a modern, enlightened, post-Christian age. It's the 21st century, for goodness sake, and they mock us. But that mistake's been made before. Just ask Edom. And they mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross. But that was a mistake as well. God's plans were wiser than their foolishness and more powerful than their weakness. And he established his eternal, never-ending kingdom when he raised his son from the grave and seated him at his right hand. And he's still ruling there today. And one day he will return and set everything right, even if it doesn't look like it at the moment. Despite the way things appear, despite people thinking we're out of date and irrelevant, the future is, the the reality is it's just the opposite of that. We're not a people of the past, we're a people of the future. A future where God's kingdom rules and where we will rule as part of it. So will you remember that next time you're struggling, next time you're ridiculed or persecuted for what you think about marriage or abortion or the rights of the disabled or truth or morality, next time you suffer injustice or next time you're tempted to just give it all away and take the easier path, Remember how God vindicated his people Judah and how he brought down her enemy Edom. Remember how he raised Jesus and remember how it's only his kingdom that will last and that everything else is going to go. Remember, we are not a people of the past. We need to be a people looking to the future and holding on to God's promises. Or as Edom says, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these promises. Uh, Sometimes when life seems unfair, we just need to be told that justice will come They'll get what's coming. And so we trust you, Lord God. We trust you in the, in the midst of the ridicule uh, Christians are suffering in Australia, uh, the persecution and death 
our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering in other countries. We cling on to your promises and your character and your kingdom and pray that you might bring good and that you would bring justice and you would protect your people and you would honour the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.